This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be talking to Julian Buckner of Vesta about whether subscription furniture has a future. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including an uptick in luxury home sales, a look at the Dallas Kips Bay Decorator Showhouse, and an update on the legal battle between artists and AI. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Homes executive editor Fred Nicholas. Hi, Fred. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, happy birthday to you! A little, little belated happy birthday <laughs> to uh, to Mr. Dennis Scully. Uh, did you have a good one? It was a it was a very fun birthday, and I had a I had a delightful evening with the lovely Mrs. Scully, as well as the lovely Kit Kemp at the Whitby <laughs> Hotel. So uh, all around very pleasant. Well, it's, uh, not all of us can be so lucky to birthday with <laughs> Kit Kemp. Trying to think of what the uh, the best birthday gift we could give you. Maybe maybe go over the latest RH earnings report for an hour or so on the podcast. I think that would be a nice uh, a nice treat. I think if you could get me the RH earnings early <laughs> as a birthday treat, that yes. would, a nice illegal birthday treat. That would be a nice insider <laughs> yes. trading birthday treat. A nice yes. securities and exchange violation. Yeah, yes. let's go for that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's quickly look back on Monday's episode. Uh, a really fun conversation with uh, Swedish British. I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, designer Beata Heyman and her husband and managing director John Finlay. Incredibly charming couple. Just super fun, top to bottom. A delightful couple. Uh, America's just going to love them. And I I think it's so fun that the product side of Beata's business grew to a point where she could hire away her husband from a very successful legal career. So this guy was uh, doing well out there in the world. But now is able to come and and help grow Bayada's business, so it's exciting. Yeah, no, I know the 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 sort of rapid growth of her product business is fast. I mean, so designers in America typically do licensing first, but you know she just started her brand right away and got it rolling, which is cool. Uh, I also found it extremely funny that within the first ten minutes of the podcast, she said, and I quote, "I think about my own death about thirty times a day." <laughs> You'll have to listen to the show to hear why that's a good positive thing. But it's it she's she's very charming. You understand why she's uh, had such success, such a unique but only spirit. thirty times a day. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. She's she's charming, and I I think people will just be delighted. I know they already are because I've gotten so many sweet notes from people. But I I think people will really enjoy this episode. I I hope they do. Uh, We're going to get to the news in just a moment, but first, a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Leloy, maker of rugs, pillows, and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. Leloy just released their fall introductions at High Point last month, starring handwoven wonders from designer collaborators, including Amber Lewis, Carrier & Company, and more. Explore all the latest launches at LaloyRugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I Rugs.com. Follow them on Instagram and TikTok at LaloyRugs to see the rugs from even more angles. Rooms may come in different shapes and sizes, but that doesn't mean you have to settle for an area rug with a so-so fit. Annie Selke, known for their best-in-class Dash and Albert rugs, offers more than 140 custom-sized rugs to suit not only any size space, but also any style, from farmhouse to coastal and everything in between. Whether you opt for hand-tufted wool, durable indoor-outdoor, or natural fiber jute, Annie Selke's custom-sized rugs will always give you a flawless fit. Down to the inch. To learn more, visit AnnieSelke.com. That's A-N-N-I-E-S-E-L-K-E dot com. Okay, we're back. First up, Fred, is the National Association of Realtors and the troubles there. Yes. Well, last week we talked about this seismic change to the world of real estate, uh, this, this legal ruling that may end buy and sell side agents splitting their commission, which sounds boring, but is actually very uh, a very impactful change. Uh, and the fallout has been immediate. The CEO of uh, the National Association of Realtors, or NAR as most people say, Bob Goldberg, resigned just days after the court ruling went through. Uh, did you see that one coming, Dennis? Well, interestingly, he had been scheduled to retire and <laughs> and released a statement saying, you know, I looked around and I thought, this is actually a good time to leave, you know? I think yeah. <laughs> right this very minute is a good time. I, I honestly think, Fred, and I don't think I'm overstating it, if I can use a Game of Thrones 
reference. <laughs> I, I, I think winter has come <laughs> to the National Association of Realtors, and, and I think a most unwelcome spotlight is being shown upon this organization that, honestly, I think is going to lead many Americans to wonder, first of all, what the heck is this organization, and how does it have a billion dollars in assets, and how is it one of the largest political action committees in the country? I mean, there are just, there are just so many things that I think people are going to question when they, they learn a lot more about this organization, and I don't think it's going to uh, have a happy outcome. I know. One of the weird side effects of reading about this case is how big and dare I say, shadowy the NAR is. It's the largest professional organization in America, over 1.5 million members. It's this very, uh, very influential thing that very few people think about. And they've been, you know, there was a scandal, you know, this summer rather seriously around a sexual harassment uh, allegation against the president who ultimately resigned. Of course, now the CEO is out. I noticed that the new CEO is a former newspaper executive, which does not bode well for the economic future of of the NAR. But I mean, in all seriousness, I I don't think the average designer really cares that much about what happens, you know, in the Kremlinology of the NAR. But I do think that the way that commissions are split is so fundamental to everything about the way real estate transactions happen. If what analysts are saying is going to happen, less money will be spent on commissions. So maybe more money will be left over to spend on designers and furniture. A a lot's going to change. No, no, I I completely agree. And I love how in the piece that you wrote, you said, if you have a realtor in your life, check in on them. They might be be having a hard time at the moment. And honestly, I think people are to that point, having a hard time just even trying to figure out when the when the smoke clears from all of this, what does this mean for the industry? What does this mean for people buying and selling homes and, and designers obviously greatly impacted by that? As we talked about on last week's show, I, I just think a lot of new competition, a, a lot of new transparency is coming. And I think ultimately, that's going to be good for designers, for the market, for just people understanding better what uh, what's really going on between buyers and sellers and how much was built into the to the price of homes. Yeah, well winter has come for the NAR but maybe maybe springtime has come for <laughs> the larger industry we're hoping. Yes, indeed. And and maybe this is a little bit of green shoots news. Uh, luxury home sales, there's been a lot of doom and gloom in the housing market lately, but uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, there's a bright spot, and you guessed it, it's the very (laughs) top of the market. Uh, According to recent numbers from Redfin, luxury inventories rose 2.9%, while the rest of the market sadly dropped by 20.8%, and prices are creeping up to 9.9% compared to 3.3% for the rest of the market. Fred, what does this suggest in your mind? It's good to be at the top. It's, it's, <laughs> it's very, very good to be at the top. I mean, I think kind of what this points to is that, you know, the reason why the housing industry has been so locked up recently is because mortgage rates have been rising. It's so much more expensive to, to take out a loan to buy a home. The caveat to that is if you don't need a mortgage and you have cash, you can basically do whatever you want. And I think that's kind of what these numbers are about is that if you have the resources to buy a home outright, you can just walk right in and pick up pick up what you want. And I think that's what these numbers are showing is that there is resiliency at the very, very, very top of the market. But, uh, you know, we were talking about this right before we, we hit record, but you were saying that if you dive deep into these numbers, it's <laughs> we shouldn't read this as overly optimistic news. Yeah. I mean, I again, I think... increase in inventory. One of the biggest challenges in the market is just the lack of inventory. And so you can have all the cash in the world, but if if there just aren't houses to buy, there aren't houses to buy. And and I think that what what we're also seeing is that Yes, it's hardly news that rich people can do whatever they darn well please, and they they don't care about an eight percent mortgage rate, and they can pay cash. and And so many of the coastal areas where they're doing a lot of purchasing don't require a cash buyer to have flood insurance. So it's it's another benefit from from being an all cash buyer. And we're and we're seeing a lot of the areas in Florida and other coastal areas uh, benefit a great deal from that. But I, I think overall, we we talk regularly about the market being frozen, and it it's still very very frozen. And we also talk about the housing affordability issue, uh, and, and that issue just continues to get worse because, as we've talked about, housing prices because there's so little supply 
the prices continue to go higher. And, and, and that's really the, the, the big challenge. Yeah, such a good point. You know, it's like saying inventory rose 2.9% is not, you know, it's not a rocket to the moon. It's just when you compare it to the fact that the rest of the market is dropping 20%, you know, it's, it's a little bit like you're like, okay, well, that's, that's a good news. That's a, that's a surge, I guess. Um, it's interesting. One of the things this news called to mind for me is what I've been hearing in my own conversations with designers out there in the world and people in the industry, which is just that you know, if you talk to designers at the very, very top of the market and the brands that cater to them, it's almost like they don't know that there's a downturn in you know the home industry. It's you know what what recession, what slowdown in furniture buying. It's 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 continuing apace. And actually, you know that's interesting because in, in 2008 2009 there was some drop out there. That doesn't seem to be the case now. But what I am hearing is that the sort of the people underneath that, the people who might have had a lot of opportunity during the peak of COVID, everybody's moving. There's a lot more money in the system. You know, you can still get a cheap mortgage in 2021. Uh, those people are slowing down. It's harder to find work. It's harder to find jobs. The, the projects that they wrapped up during COVID are, are done now, and they're looking for their new things. They're doing side hustles. So I do think what this speaks to is that, you know, the very top of the market remains safe as it usually does, but there is you know, as these numbers would suggest, a slowdown, you know, immediately below that. Let's jump to this new AI ruling, Fred. Sure. Well, uh, in January, a group of artists sued major AI companies like Stability AI and Midjourney. I know a lot of designers know that one. Uh, the artists are arguing that, among other things, their work has been illegally used to train the AI image generators. And last week, the judge overseeing the case uh, ended up throwing out a lot of the complaints. So this was sort of seen as a victory for the AI companies and a loss for the artists. But they did allow sort of a pared down version of the central idea that these, you know, this art had been used illegally to to continue. So this was a little bit of a, a, a mixed result in this uh, sort of ongoing legal battle. To be sure, and I and I know it's complicated how these models get get trained and and the images that are scanned. To maybe you can explain a, a little bit how they how they work and how they learn. Sure. So a lot of these tools, like you know, Midjourney, I think is sort of rapidly becoming the the, the engine of choice for designers. Uh, the way it learns to generate these, you know, astoundingly beautiful images on command is the people who programmed it basically feed it millions and millions of pictures. Like I think it's looked at most of Pinterest and it uses those images to sort of get a sense of, okay, when a user asks for, you know, a picture of a Ferrari, this is what a Ferrari looks like. The problem is just that like a lot of the images that it's been trained on are copyrighted. They're owned by artists who own a copyright on that work. And the sort of central issue here is is that training process feeding those images into this AI engine an illegal usage or a fair usage? And you can kind of see the argument on both sides, right? Because on the one hand, it sort of seems fundamentally unfair that artists aren't being paid for their work. But on the other hand, you wouldn't necessarily sue another artist just because they'd been influenced by your work. You know, if, if you were talking about a commercial illustrator who had looked at your interior design and said, oh, that's beautiful. I love the color red. I'm going to make my color red look a little bit like that. You couldn't sue them. So it's a very complicated, almost sort of philosophical issue as much as it is a legal one. Uh, but it's uh, it's still very much up for debate. I agree that it's so complicated and it's and it's hard to imagine how they're going to ultimately rule on a lot of these cases. I, I sense a a growing confidence in some of the AI companies, several of which have come out and announced that they will pay the legal costs of people who get sued if they generated an image using their technology. And so I think I don't I don't want to not sound hopeful about artists uh, winning these suits and being able to protect their work. But it just seems to be moving so quickly. And it it sort of made me think of the early days of Uber and, and San Francisco kept trying to put all these laws in place <laughs> to control Uber's growth. And Uber just kind of kept going around them and, and until one day they were just the go-to. And I, so I just feel like, yes, the, these lawsuits raise a lot of really important issues. And I, and I worry about seeing more and more designers, we've talked about them using AI for idea generation. I see a lot of AI generated images in people's Instagram feeds these days. And it just seems to become, it seems to be becoming commonplace and, and happening so quickly, right? 
No, I see it more and more every day. I feel like, you know, when the technology sort of launched for consumers last autumn, it was very clear that it was going to have an impact on design in a way that crypto never did, for example. And, you know, you're just seeing adoption go up and up and up. And you even see like Walmart and Wayfair playing with AI engines. So this this definitely does matter for designers. And, you know, the legal issue at the core of it is fascinating. But I think bottom line, looking at these lawsuits, it seems like, you know, the law, at least right now, is is ruling largely in favor of these uh, these AI companies. And, uh, you know, it, an ironic kind of twist of this, too, is that, you know, so many of these engines have been trained on designers' work. I mean, like I said, I think some of these have been trained basically by looking at Pinterest, and there's a lot of interior designer pictures uh, on Pinterest. So I think there's a good chance that if you're a designer listening to this, then, then your work has been fed into something like MidJourney. So... I guess there's a kind of a cosmic justice in being able to use it to spit out inspiration that you pass on to a client. Well, and that's why I think to that point, Fred, in, in a way, I feel like the ship has already sailed. I, I, I just feel there's so much that they've that they've copied al- already that I, I just don't see how you in a meaningful way rein that back in. Just seems like the horse is out of the barn. I agree completely. I think the only thing that would change this is a change to the, you know, if the Senate passes a new AI bill, then that might shake things up. But under the current system, yeah, I, I agree. I think the horse is out in the field. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know how well the Senate understands AI. So I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> They're trying, Dennis. That. They're trying. <laughs> They're trying. About <laughs> <laughs> that legislation coming through. Uh, moving on, we're going to talk about the unfortunate shipping recession. It's, uh, it's tough times out there in the freight industry, as we know. Just last month, Convoy, a major shipping startup that at one point was valued at $3.8 billion, <laughs> announced it was shuttering. This week, the Danish shipping giant Maersk announced it was cutting 10,000 jobs, and this is only a few months after Yellow, at one point one of the largest trucking firms in the U.S., filed for bankruptcy. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of how we read all of this, Fred. Well, thank you, first of all, for saying Maersk, because I was <laughs> definitely afraid to pronounce that word, and I'm glad that you got it out of the way. Um yeah, it's uh, it, it's tough. I mean, I think during COVID, obviously, there was so much demand for shipping and trucking and so many thousands of small trucking companies popped up. But, you know, then the demand went away. And at the same time, fuel prices have been slowly rising. It's sort of like the demand is going down. The fixed costs are going up. And at the end of the day, that's only going to lead to one outcome. No, I agree. And and unfortunately, and and. Maersk has been talking about this for for some time. They 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 were surprised last year by how heavy the inventory buildup had become here in the States. And they thought that we would have worked through this big inventory buildup by now. And uh, the, the reason that they're announcing these layoffs is that they see that we are clearly nowhere near through uh, selling off all of this excess inventory that companies seem to have. And now they're looking at perhaps the middle of next year as, as a point by which this could all clear. So companies stopped ordering as much. Companies stopped shipments. Their Maersk's revenues were down about 40% in the last quarter. I mean, showing you how, how dramatic the, the drop-off is. And I, I think that they're feeling as though in, in, until we see these companies work through these inventory levels, uh, there, there's really nothing to be optimistic about when it comes to, to shipping coming back. Yeah. And I think sort of the knock-on effect for interior designers is that, you know, because all these big freight agencies are struggling, you will see sort of a continuation of not the dramatic shipping challenges of COVID, but, you know... It, uh, when a when a shipping and logistics network and ecosystem is really healthy, stuff just gets delivered quickly because there's so much competition and everyone has to be better. But when there's so much doom and gloom in the industry, I do think you will see you know delays and damages, and I I think that's kind of a perennial problem in the industry, and and this is probably bad news in that regard. I mean, to spin it in kind of the positive way, I have noticed recently that like more and more designers are starting their own little mini receiving operation, kind of taking matters into their own hands, <laughs> renting a warehouse. I mean, it's obviously you have to have the money to do it, but I do think there's an opportunity here for someone to come along and build logistics that works specifically for the design business because it is such a need for designers. And clearly, you know, the same people who are, you know, hauling, you know, 25,000 you know, Pokemon flashlights across the ocean are not the ideal people to, to you know, to do logistics for, you know, a, a custom sofa. So I feel like it's one of the areas in the industry that's sort of underdeveloped. And I'd love to see more and more companies try to, to build something there in the future. 
Well, I don't want to take anything away from the upcoming interview with Julian Buckner at Vesta, but it was definitely one of the things that we that we talked about with his staging design furniture rental company was this was this last foot delivery service, not to be right. confused with last mile. <laughs> right. Last but, inch delivery, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I completely agree with you. I think there is a lot of room for companies that can figure out all of the complexities of what designers face, and, and we, we have to fix this damages issue. It, it's just one of the, one of the biggest challenges facing, facing everyone in the shipping industry. So uh, hopefully that can be addressed but uh, lean times are usually the time to to do it and and for these companies that are finding a way to do it better to to come along and and shine so we'll so we'll see moving on to the great state of Texas and uh, and the Kipps Bay Dallas showhouse I was just there in Dallas this past weekend checking out the designer showhouse and now in its fourth year in the state of Texas did you did you see pictures of the house o- online Fred I did. I'm jealous that you got to go in person, but it looked like a really lovely, a, a really lovely house, and uh, maybe a little less crazy than the than the New York uh, show house, which often has these sort of big, explosive statements. This, uh, you know, this looked like kind of like a more uh, a house with more rooms that I could live in myself. I think is probably my takeaway. Uh, what was uh, what were some highlights for you? Well, it's fun to see, and this was the first time I had been to, to Texas to see the the show house, and so I was I was excited to get to see it. It's it, it's a really beautiful house. The designers pulled out all the stops. It was it was fun to see. I was I was struck by the fact that there wasn't a formal dining room in oh, the house. That's interesting. Yeah. And I don't know if that was some statement about how people are living today or. <laughs> I feel like we've we've talked about the death, the long rumor death of the dining room. But my impression was always that Texas was the was going to be the last stand. Interesting to hear that they didn't have one. Um, yeah, and I don't know if that was because somebody didn't want to do it, or if it was just. Uh, but in an eight thousand square foot house, you yeah. would you would assume that there would be a a nice formal dining room. But again, maybe it's a nod to people living not living that way these days. Yeah, I'm curious. One thing is, you know, on the the issue of like just the style, you know, mm. in New York, oftentimes I think we think of Kips Bay as sort of like a launching pad for designers almost to connect with the media as much as it is to connect with the client. I mean, I do think they want clients out of participating in Kips Bay, but I do think it's just kind of coming out and, you know, it's a big... It's a big media event, I think, for lack of a better word. I'm curious if you feel like like the focus was a little bit different in Dallas. Like, do designers kind of really just expect to get a couple clients out of it and that's it? Or how do they think of it in a way that's different than designers in New York approach it? Well, I do think, to your point, there's there was no crazy statement room. There was no, imagine you're having dinner with 10 people from history, and who would they be, and, <laughs> yes. and things things yeah. we've seen at past show houses. I, I, I think this was a very, one designer referred to it as a very approachable house, and I, and I think it really was, is. And I think, to your point, it's the kind of house where you can see somebody coming in and say, yes, I want to work with this interior designer. I love this space. I want to hire you. There, there certainly was a lot of press around it as well. It certainly is an opportunity to get press, and there's lots of lots of Dallas and Texas publications, and Veranda did a long piece about it. Um, but it it really did seem like the, the kind of house that I think naturally will lead to, to clients for people, I, I hope. Yeah, and I mean, to be clear, people do get clients out of the Kipps Bay New York show house as well. But I just think there is this tradition of these crazy, like, you know, the Sasha Bykoff staircase. And, you know, I didn't see any Memphis Milano wallpaper uh, at the (laughs) Kipps Bay Dallas. So, yeah, I mean, what about, I was curious, you know, we always talk about how Texas has been this, like, explosive growth market for the design industry over the past, I don't know, gosh, five, ten years, even especially since COVID with so many people moving there. Did you get a sense of that just talking to designers? Like, were they all like, yeah, Texas? Is, Texas is bigger and better. What was your What was your take on that? You know, it was funny because a uh, longtime friend of the show, Darren Hanolt, was uh, did a room, a New York designer, and he said, "You know, everyone's telling me I got to come to Texas. Everyone tells me it's so busy here in Texas." <laughs> yeah. So he uh, he he did a he did a really beautiful room in the house. It it was fascinating, Fred. It's been a long time since I visited some place that had as many cranes, as much construction, as much development activity going on. I'm going to I'm going to tease something that I'm going to save for the end of the show about one of the things that's happening in Dallas. 
but it was it was clear that there's this sense of things are things are booming and and people want to be here and and as we've talked about it's become such a huge market for so many companies and I, I get it. And you definitely have that, that feel as you go through the city. Yeah, gotcha. Well, we'll have to take the podcast on the road, get some barbecue, do a, do a live episode <laughs> from a, a smoke pit. Uh, and uh, I, I can't wait. I would I would love that. I, I disappointed the lovely Mrs. Gully by not taking her to some honky tonk. And uh, she, <laughs> now that's now that's she, a mental image. That was <laughs> Dennis Scully line dancing. Well, to, <laughs> if that happens, we got to yeah. put that on social try, media. Try to get that out of your head if you can. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's it for the news. But there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com, including a profile of California ceramicist Aaron Hupp and a look at whether designers prefer renovations or new builds. We're going to get to my discussion with Julian in just a minute. But first, a quick break. A quick break to remind you that whether you have a tiny bedroom or a grand hallway... Annie Selkie has more than 140 rug designs that can be custom-sized for the perfect fit. With the same quality and craftsmanship you've come to expect from Annie Selkie. The collection includes exclusive hand-woven styles from celebrated collaborators Bunny Williams and Marie Flanagan. Large swatches are available, as well as in-house experts to help you place your order and answer questions. The best part? Most custom-sized rugs ship in just two to three weeks. Visit AnnieSelke.com to learn more. That's A-N-N-I-E-S-E-L-K-E dot com. New introductions from Leloy include rugs that feel good under your feet and that you can feel good about purchasing. Their latest handmade rugs are Goodweave certified, ensuring that they're made from an ethical and transparent supply chain. And the new Amira collection is their first-ever Okotex Made in Green rug, certifying that the rug was made in an environmentally friendly and socially responsible workplace. Learn more at laloyrugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com. For an inside look at all things Laloy, follow at Laloy Rugs on Instagram and TikTok. Okay, my guest today is Julian Buckner, who is the founder and CEO of Vesta. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dennis. I'm delighted to have you and and eager to have you explain for listeners. Some people may be familiar with Vesta, perhaps from the staging side of the business, but tell us what the business is. There's a lot of different components to it. Yeah, for sure. So I uh, started Vesta back in 2017. We started in the niche market of very high-end staging and interior design. And and the thesis I had around the company was looking at kind of the whole home space in a general. Everyone, the biggest challenge everyone faces is customer acquisition cost and fighting for these customers at kind of this very discrete ephemeral point in time, which is people spend money on furniture and interior design services right after they buy a home. And every company in the space is fighting for these customers at this, at this very specific point in time. And it's expensive time to acquire customers. And I saw the home staging industry in a bit of a different way. I saw it as an opportunity for us to basically furnish these beautiful properties and turn these homes using the software and the technology we've created into distribution channels and into a distributed network, basically, of showrooms that then we could sell through our furniture and interior design to customers. So started the business in 2017. We quickly built out the largest staging company in the country. But out of that, have built a flywheel of other products and specialty services out of the home to serve our high-end customer base. And those services are We started with residential interior design. We launched a high-end furniture rental segment where we'd work with celebrities in town, anyone kind of (laughs) renting very high-end houses. And then most recently, we launched our direct-to-consumer furniture sales business. And that's Vesta. It's a very high-end product focused kind of in like the $5 million price point plus. And that's that's the business we created. Started in Los Angeles, uh, expanded to San Francisco Bay Area. South Florida, Miami, Palm Beach, Naples, and most recently Manhattan. If if I remember 
you were at one point involved with the company showroom i think it was called that that had a this technology right that was that was going to be revolutionary in the space is, is part of that what you brought into into vesta to sort of get it get it going yeah, a little bit. So I, so a little background on me. I was working in management consulting at McKinsey. My first kind of after a few years of that, my first foray into the world of furniture and design was through this early stage startup called Showroom. Mm. They were building a software product for interior designers. Uh, and that's how I got introduced to the home staging industry. That product, some small mom and pop staging companies were using that software system. And I was 24 at the time. I had never thought about buying or selling a home. It was before a million dollar listing and selling Sunset and kind of the popularization of this whole industry. That's how I discovered home staging and really had this epiphany around the concept of negative distribution channel acquisition cost and turning these staged homes into showrooms and kind of marrying the physical, traditional brick and mortar showroom model with a more digital e-commerce for shopping experience and kind of bringing those together using staging as our beachhead into creating a very unique customer experience for people to interact with interior design and interact with purchasing furniture. Come back to something that you were just saying and and how you how you think about the term you used was negative distribution channel acquisition cost. Yeah. So T- tell us what that means. Especially now you look at the industry and there's kind of, there's two distribution channels in the home furnishing space, right? One is brick and mortar. And if you've seen with like Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams, like that is traditional brick and mortar is challenged by high fixed cost, high overhead cost of opening showrooms around the country. And you can very easily get ahead of your skis. And that's been, that model has been around for hundreds of years. It can be very successful, but it's an expensive and a difficult model to run. And then you have changing consumer preferences towards a more digitally native e-commerce first approach. But the digitally native e-commerce companies are basically slaves to Google and Facebook algorithms. And when those algorithms change, their customer acquisition costs can change dramatically. And that model is also very challenging. And what the dynamic that I noticed in the staging industry, which was a super fragmented business, completely unprofessionalized, kind of the only real competition out there was mom and pops. But the more interesting thing that I noticed was that these staging companies had negative distribution channel acquisition costs. They were getting paid to take their product and put it into the most beautiful homes in the country. And then a real estate agent's walking through the most highly qualified potential customers because if you're walking through an open house at a $30 million house in Malibu, you're going to buy something in that price point on the west side of LA. And when you buy a $30 million house, you're going to spend a million or two dollars, a million or two on furniture, and you're going to hire an interior designer. And that's that inflection point, right? That's when everyone is spending money on this industry. And I saw staging as this opportunity to turn these homes into showrooms and create this really excellent shopping experience for customers that wasn't challenged by the fixed cost overhead of opening up retail showrooms or completely reliant on Facebook algorithms to market my product. One of the things that surprised us when we spoke to some of the big staging companies was what a big portion of their business was actually furniture rental. And you you alluded to this earlier when you talked about sometimes a celebrity shows up in town, they get this five, 10, $15 million house. They just want to furnish it with some some nice looking stuff. And they don't want to be bothered with shopping for it all or hiring someone. to. So the idea of just renting it all seemed really appealing. To, and, and it sounds like that's some of what you've discovered yourself. Yeah. The furniture rental side of the business is, is a big business line for us. Look, what you have is like consumers want flexibility, right? Mm. And especially a high-end consumer in the past has been challenged by there being a lack of options for flexibility on furniture and interior design, right? You either stayed at a very nice hotel, and if you're going to be at a place for a long time, you don't want to live at a hotel, or the only furniture rental options out there were like the court furnitures of the world, right? right. Which is a, it scratches an itch, but it's a very low-end product and your high-end consumer wasn't going to isn't going to live with that. And so what we found is by offering a high-end product for rental, you have a lot of consumers who might be we work with a lot of athletes who 
you know, get traded to the Clippers or the Lakers or in town <laughs> for sports, kind of business folks who are, you know, doing a one or two year stint in a headquarters in LA, they want to rent a home and they want to have nice furniture. And if the option is go spend a million dollars or half a million dollars at restoration hardware for a year or live on court furniture, they're going to do the former. They're going to mm. go spend that money, but they'd much, but it's wasteful and they'd much prefer to rent a high end product that fits with their lifestyle. So on the rental side of our business, we do a lot of rental and, and people love that product. So what was harder for me to understand was when we first started to learn of some of these, I don't want to say low level, they were, they seemed more entry level, some of mm-hmm. furnish, furnish and, and feather, both, both companies that we've spoken to in the past, they seemed to be offering this furniture rental model, but with a, with a product that surprised me that it could be returned and then cleaned and then sent back out again just because of the the price point of where it fell and it was it was geared toward a, a very different consumer than I think we're talking about the it, it wasn't geared to the professional athlete or the Hollywood celebrity it it, it seemed more of a it, some people were first apartment or some people just were perhaps moving to a different city for the first time didn't want to commit to buying a bunch of things um so I'm curious, part of the reason that we're talking is it sounds like you've acquired these companies, both Furnish yep. and, and, and Feather, right? And I'm curious to hear first what what happened w- with them and, and, and what we think that means. One of the things we built out at Vesta was a very successful and have built out as a very successful platform. That platform is the software system, which is the circular economy asset management software system and the distribution and logistics infrastructure for circularity. Once you've got that infrastructure built out, whether you're running very high-end product through it or more entry-level product through it, it's the same infrastructure. So, you know, in short, what that means is our business has a tremendous amount of fixed cost leverage. And it always made sense and it was always part of the vision for us to expand into a more mass premium product And the rationale for that was, A, it's running more volume through this amazing logistics and technology platform that we've built out. But B, my my vision for the company has always been to create, if you will, like a cradle-to-grave design experience for customers. (laughs) And I really loved Furnishes and Feathers' premium customer base. It was a young, mobile, professional and the idea of getting in early with this customer base, call it the emerging, early emerging affluence, and being able to provide them a solution that aligns with their lifestyle, and then work with them through an increasingly sophisticated, increasingly hands-on service offering of design and product offering of furniture through when they you know, leave their first job and ultimately start their first company buy their first home, sell their first company, and then they're shopping for that Malibu beach house between the furnished brand now on the entry level of the mass affluence investor, we can service kind of that full spectrum of customers. The business models of both furnish and feather were these, you know, heavily venture backed companies that were fighting for scale very quickly. And my strategy with Vesta has always been to run this business profitably and figure out how to make the business model work. And what we were able to do with both of those companies is bring them onto our platform and instantly, and by instantly, I mean like within six weeks, make those companies cash flowing and quite profitable by combining them with our software, combining them with our logistics, combining them with our distribution. And those business models now are hugely successful in bringing customers into the broader showroom group ecosystem at a much earlier stage and allowing us to continue to provide products and services to them throughout their life cycle. When we first began to talk about subscription furniture and and you and you point out court which has always been there and I think people thought of court as either sort of office more geared towards the office space or or they were these apartments that they would fix up for executives who might be staying for an extended period of time that sort of thing and and I and I get it 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 just wasn't 
it wasn't what the market was was looking for. The furniture industry was skeptical when we started to have these conversations, though though they seemed eager to try and and, and figure out how it could work. But there was a skepticism about would would people really want to rent this this furniture versus versus buy it? And yet, both furnish and feather seem to be to your point. They seem to be quite successful raising money from from venture capitalists, and there was a lot of excitement about how this model was going to transform our, our perception of the different, as you say, the different ways you could furnish an apartment, but or a home or whatever. But they both seem to run out of steam for for, for different reasons, I gather. But but both companies just stumbled a, a, a bit. What's your what's your sense of why the the models as they existed before didn't work? Yeah, so it, it wasn't so much a, a model problem as it was a capital problem. And the way that I look at kind of all of these businesses, Vasta included, is there is a high cost to setting up the infrastructure needed to make circularity work. And, you know, that is warehousing, it's distribution, it's logistics. And there's kind of only two ways to, like, I call those a black hole of money, if you will, (laughs) because they can be. And there's really only two ways to hit escape velocity, if you will, from that black hole, right? And that's either having high margin or having high volume. And through Vesta, we always had high margin because we serviced that luxury premium customer. And that's how we were able to scale our business. The feathers and the furnishes of the world weren't going after luxury. They weren't going after high margin. They were going after high volume. And to get to high volume, you need to deploy a lot of capital assets, and it's expensive. And both companies got caught in in, in feather more than furnished, got caught, and it was right when the Fed started hiking interest rates. No one was reinvesting money, and they were operating on this model where the venture capitalists had said, yeah, we'll just keep writing blank checks. Tell us what you need. And all of a sudden that stopped. And when the music stopped and they required probably another 15 or $20 million invested in order to get to a volume of installation where the business would have been profitable because it's Mm. a very strong business model. They just weren't, they hadn't hit the volume they needed for escape velocity and they needed more money to get there. And Feather ran into a capital markets issue because the VC capital just dried up for them. Furnish was farther along than Feather was, but was just on that hamster wheel of, mm. okay, we, you know, we have more venture capital money lined up. We can re, you know, we can raise more money from investors. We can make a run at this, but we're going to have to do that a couple more times before, again, we, we get to that point of scale. And after I had purchased Feather, I had a conversation. I reached out to the CEO of Furnish just to introduce myself and say, hey, I now own your biggest competitor. At some point, it's going to make sense for us to uh, merge these companies because they do largely the same thing and scale's important in this business. And over the ensuing year, Michael and I developed a relationship. And when it came time for his next raise, we started talking and I laid out an alternative to the venture hamster wheel and one that <laughs> would allow him to you know, be acquired by Vesta and come join a much larger platform that had scale and instead of focus on capital raising could focus on building you know this business model and reinvesting in the business model and kind of doing the fun stuff that we entrepreneurs love to do <laughs> well, and that makes sense and, and and we should point out for listeners that michael is is michael barlow who was the was the ceo at at furnish and as you say it it, it sounds like and, and and so many founders have shared this. It, it's just an exhausting process when you've got to go back again and again and do another raise and 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 do another uh, series of of pitches to to get the money to to just keep it. To I've keep avoided it, going. it like the plague for me. <laughs> I uh... how is that possible that you haven't raised capital that way? How have you done all that you've just outlined without needing to do that? It's been like a day by day knife fight over the last uh, six years. No, but look, it's like a little bit of like running business the old-fashioned way, focusing on bottom line and making sure the business model works. And we have reinvested every dollar of free cash flow for the last six years in growth. 
And, you know, that takes, I think, cost and focusing on cost is truly a discipline. And it's a discipline we learned very early by not having deep pockets um, and really learning to manage our cash flow and our balance sheet and make smart investment decisions. And, you know, we've been growing 30 plus percent a year and that, that growth rate compounded over six years gets you to a pretty decent scale. And what's driving that 30% growth? What's the, what part of the business is really pulling uh, sort of a, a, above, its, above its weight? It's really the combination of that flywheel I described at the beginning, which is it's self-perpetuating. Like the more homes that we stage, it's the equivalent of a retailer opening up more stores. But instead of spending, you know, Restoration spends $30, $50 million on a build-out, instead of us spending money on a build-out of a new store, we're getting paid to open up another store. And every new distribution channel, every new property that we stage puts us in front of the most amazing customer base who's as a is a high intent customer to then hire us for interior design services and hire us for and, and buy our furniture. And so very early on we realized that you need to own or at least you know come as close as possible to owning the means of production. Otherwise the, the industry is just markup, layered on markup, layered on markup <laughs> until you get to like a retailer, a wholesale price, and that's just lost margin. And so it self-perpetuates. And then the more homes we stage, the more furniture. We're fully vertically integrated. So we're designing all of the furniture that we put into these homes. We're contract manufacturing it. And the more we do, the more relationships we have, the more furniture we bring in, the more then we can sell through our D2C channels. We just launched our new website. And the more people that are ultimately exposed to our products. And so you know, my like vision for this is really looking at the home as kind of the next iteration of retail distribution and, you know, hundreds of years of brick and mortar. Then you've got e-commerce. Both of those distribution models, I think, are fundamentally broken, especially when it comes to the home space. And I think kind of the, the home is the next frontier of retail distribution. And that's what, that's what's really driving this business. It's, it's a business model innovation that we've seen really resonate with our customer base. So coming back to Feather and Furnish and the market that they were attempting to service. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were talking earlier about, so you just got your first job in New York City, but you, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be scaling up income-wise quickly, but right now you just want to get a place outfitted with some furniture. West Elm, CB2, the sort of things that it looked to me like Furnish and Feather were sending out to people, if somehow there was a disconnect for me with both sort of the, the quality level or the durability, perhaps, of that product. So are you now putting this product that we've just been talking about, that you've been developing, that you've been designing, is that what you imagine sending out to those Furnish and Feather-like clients? Yeah. So we've completely, we are not purchasing from wholesale, High Point, West Elm, CB2 any longer. It's entirely now through our own supplier base and manufacturing chain. So we can control that production, we can control that quality, and also you know make the margins make sense. And, and so do these two acquisitions and everything that we've just been discussing, does all of that suggest that you are a believer in this model, that there are plenty of people out there who would rather rent the furniture in the home for, for, for a host of different reasons that you've, you've outlined versus purchase it at, at, at least right now. And maybe they end up purchasing it a year from now after they've lived with it for a while. And that's another option that you want to be able to provide. But you think that's a market. Yes, I, we know that's a market. When you are moving around a lot, it doesn't make sense to buy furniture. Like I have friends, if you think about it, Typically, the most expensive purchase you make after your first car is your first sofa. And, mm. I, you know, I'm sure we all know people who have, I've had <laughs> friends who've moved from LA to New York and they ship that sofa with them because they are so attached to it. They're spending more money on the shipping than they would cost to buy a new one. And they shouldn't have bought that sofa in the first place unless they were planning on staying in LA in a long time. And there isn't a, there is a need for flexibility in this market. And, the furnishes of the world 
offer that service. Now, what's key and what makes it work for us and what makes it much more interesting than that as a standalone business is now we take that customer and we bring them into a much larger ecosystem of higher margin products and services that we can start to work with that customer and have a relationship with that customer, starting with their first purchase through that entire life cycle. And Dennis, I think an interesting anecdote, just to give you a sense, I was having a conversation with a large, like the strategic M&A team of a large, very large furniture company, like big box retailer. Mm -hmm. And they're starting to think more about circularity and, and the way that they were thinking about it, I think is really apt in a good way of kind of thinking about the importance of this business model, which is they're looking at our average desk is a thousand dollars and our average customer only uses that desk for two years. And, you know, there's the whole environmental side of this, which is fundamental to what we do in the ESG angle, right? Which is there's a tremendous amount of waste that comes along with that. And, and mm. this senior executive was like, that's very important to us. But the way that we're looking at this is a thousand dollar desk that's only used for two years has $200 of value associated with it and $800 of dead weight loss. And that loss is being experienced by our consumer. And if we can start to offer circularity, we can start to capture that $800 of dead weight loss and we can pass some of those savings onto our consumer and be more competitive in the market. And we can capture some of those savings in the form of pure contribution margin for us. And everyone is better off. And that's their rationale for looking into circularity. And the reason we were having a conversation is because circularity is very challenging. You know, why can't like a restoration hardware go and do this themselves? Because mm. their warehouses and their logistics they could. I mean, they have all the money in the world, right? But their warehouses <laughs> and their logistics aren't set up for it. You need a different warehousing infrastructure. Your racking needs to be adjusted to different heights. You need different white glove movers instead of 3PL companies. You need a whole different software infrastructure to manage that product. So it's challenging for the incumbents to get into this. And like the sleeper business that we've created between Vesta, Feather, and Furnish is what powers all of those businesses is a shared platform of technology and a shared platform of logistics that I believe as more and more companies start opening up to circularity, which we're seeing like decathlon and sports is getting into uh, sports equipment rental. Because why should anyone own a tent for camping when the average person right. goes once every five years? You should rent that. And... So as we're starting to see more companies open up to that, our logistics, technology, and distribution infrastructure starts to become very valuable to facilitate circularity in like a fixed asset economy. And do you imagine the, the software and the platform that you've just talked about, do you imagine that also becoming a, a, a software as service business for you to help some of these companies that want to figure out this circularity issue? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we, Vesta had spent millions of dollars creating our own software platform. Feather and Furnish had each spent many, many, many millions of dollars <laughs> creating effectively Sadly. the same. Sadly. Yeah, cre creating effectively the same <laughs> yes. platform. Right. And every other company in the space operating, and not just in furniture, right, but any sort of equipment rental requires that software system. And the reason we all spent that money building it was because it doesn't exist off the shelf. And so now we've taken those different software platforms. We're in the process of integrating them into a single one. And that it, part of our roadmap is then commercializing that product and offering that to anyone with a asset circular economy asset rental business. And, and as you say, the, the biggest challenge is for these companies, besides not having the right software, or the right platform, but but also just the way that their warehouses are structured, the way that their delivery and pickup. I mean, you see so many of these, even the big companies often don't don't want to deal with returns, for example. The whole reverse logistics operation is just so wildly complicated. We've seen that Wayfair has just thrown, you, you want to talk about spending a lot of money. I mean, Wayfair spent, what, what, we're almost at $3 billion, I believe, right, that we've, that we've thrown at, at this to, to try and make this massive 
reverse logistics operation work, and and it it still seems to elude them somehow. Yeah, it is a discipline, right? Like it is mm. the reverse logistics side of this business is not sexy. But I love you talked about Wayfair. You know, the example I use is uh, like uh, Shopify and Deliver, right? Mm. Like the huge multi-billion dollar write-off as well. And, and when you look at the market, like Amazon owns last mile, right? And they spent, I think I read like they spent $100 billion just over the last five years building <laughs> out their last mile capabilities, right? And essentially recreating a FedEx or a DHL. And I wouldn't want to compete with Amazon on last mile. (laughs) But no one owns last foot. And what I mean by last foot is over the doorstep and into the living room. Like that is the next frontier in distribution. And it is a fundamentally different skill set and and the reverse of that, right? Out of the living room and back. Mm. But that is, no one has figured that out yet. And, and no one's really playing at that at any sort of a scale. And I think that's very valuable real estate to, in a very valuable like skill set to have. And it's fundamental to our operations, right? It is what drives our operations because mm. we are in and out of houses all day long. And I, I think, you know, aside from, you know, look at these different business lines, like our revenue generating business lines are very high in residential design, furniture rental, home staging, um, and furniture sales. In the next five years, does that logistics, reverse logistics as a service become a revenue-generating business line? Do we flip that from a cost center into a profit center for this business? I think absolutely. So help me understand the scale of all of these different components of the operation. So how, how big is the design side of the, of the business right now, for example? Design side of the business is about 15-ish percent of our revenue. So business start, when we started the business in 2017, it was 100% very high-end staging. Every year, and this has been part of our strategy, staging becomes, sta- the staging business has grown on an absolute basis, but has right. shrunk on a relative basis as our other business lines have become more successful. The way I think about it, right, is you look at like a restoration hardware or any retail store, right? Mm -hmm. They look at the metric is same store sales per square foot. And I think restoration hardware is like a thousand bucks a square foot, right? And that's an an efficiency metric for these stores. For us, we look at the same thing, but it's same store sales per staged square foot. It's how much total retail space do we have out of these staged properties and how effective can we get it selling through that? And that's selling through the furniture that's in place or interior design services or everything else. So now we can have these conversations where, hey, you like this design. Our first interior design client ever was Steph Curry because Steph and Aisha saw a house that we staged in Atherton. It was like a $30 million house. They didn't buy it. They bought another one. Hmm. But they were like, hey, who did that design? We really like that style. Can we hire them? Right. And it's like, you think about the whole interior design industry, it's so, it's word of mouth, right? Like the mm. big companies, the Michael Smiths, the Kelly Wurstlers, like they don't have outside sales teams marketing their product, right? Maybe they've got a couple of flagship design studios in major cities, but it's a cult of personality built around an individual. And what we've mm. built is, and what we're building on the interior design side, I believe is the first national brand in residential, and and we've actually started to do some more commercial and hospitality, but it's still primarily residential, interior design, like a Gensler equivalent of design. Because when you are a Kelly Wurstler, you're you're an artistic genius, you can only scale that business so much because your clients want, they're hiring Kelly. Yeah. Right? And they're not hiring all of the minions. But when you hire a Vesta, you're getting a quality standard and you're getting a big company behind you who you know is going to perform and is a big business that you can rely on. And a lot of people that will never supplant the you know artistic geniuses of the world, but a lot of people just want a beautiful space and they don't want to deal with kind of all of the other bullshit that comes along with uh, design. To be sure. So how many designers do you have right now on the, on the Vesta team? We have a little over 30. Okay. 
Yeah, and that's across the country. We were, like I mentioned, we're in LA, New York, San Francisco, Miami, but our the residential and commercial design side of the business, we work across the country. As we think about sort of wrapping all of this up, I wonder out there in, in your world, how serious is the push from people to, to figure out the, the environmental impact. The, the furniture industry is sort of notorious for being terrible industry when it comes to the environment. As you were saying earlier, people buy the desk, uh, use it for two years, usually it ends up in the landfill somewhere. And that was why so many of these companies were pitching this whole I- environmental aspect in their in their model. But do you sense that we are experiencing a tipping point where people are serious enough about addressing sustainability and circularity that they're that they're demanding this or 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 not yet really i would say not yet as a primary driving factor okay but we are seeing it becoming more important and what's been key to our business is customers care about convenience and quality first but the ESG element has become like a close secondary. And so by offering the flexibility to our customers and saying, you don't have to you know, take that athlete who moves to LA, they're not going to care enough about ESG to live on court furniture. They're just mm. not. They'll go to restoration hardware, they'll spend half a million dollars, and they'll throw it away when they're done. But they care about the environment. They're just not going to have court furniture in their house. And so when we go to those customers and say, don't go to restoration hardware, don't go spend half a million dollars and throw it away after, here's furniture that is higher quality, it looks beautiful, you can have your friends over, be proud of your new place, and you're helping the environment, that resonates with people. No, no, it, it makes sense. I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk us through all of this. Well, thank you, Dennis. I appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. And we're back. We're getting to the end of the show here. But before we go, we'd like to take a second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye. Fred? Well, this week I have two things, actually. One one little item <laughs> that I think people should check out is uh, the, the Barbara Walters estate auction has her in- incredible design collection, frankly. She had some really, really crazy pieces like uh, Barcelona. Well, sorry, an Eames chair upholstered in red leather and a Mario Boada uh, armchair and some rather interesting pillows. It was just kind of a delightful, uh, you know, I know it's a little morbid, but I have to say I do love, you know, when you have an estate sale of a celebrity to sort of look at what they had in their home is I, I find endlessly fascinating. The Joan Didion auction was uh, was an incredible one. <laughs> um, but I also just wanted to, to quick flag a company that uh, I'm a, a big fan of and probably cannot be objective as a reporter about, which is uh, East Fork, the North Carolina-based uh, ceramics company. It was funny. We, we had uh, the co-founders, Connie and Alex, Indeed. on the show a couple years ago, and I remember when we talked to them, Alex, who's I think the great-grandson of Henri Matisse, talked about how it was like this horrible burden to live up to, and it sort of informed a lot of his young adulthood wanting to get away from that. And, you know, we talked a lot about how the company was really growing and sort of a kicky startup that could. And, you know, just a few years later, I get this catalog from East Fork and, you know, they've grown so much in the past few years. And there's now a collection called Matisse Red or something like yes. that. So they've clearly, clearly Alex has moved beyond that uh, hang up about, about his lineage and the company has <laughs> grown a lot and they're trying new things. And, you know, as you can probably tell by my tone of voice, I'm the, the least objective person about East Fork. But uh <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's cool to see the, the you know the company having grown and changed over these past few years. Uh, I completely agree, and and as we talked about on an earlier show, they were at Shop Object in, in right. High Point, and uh, and they had a great they had a great and they had other products too, candles and gift items and things, and so uh, they they are they are expanding their offerings a great deal, Fred. And I think we all know what to get Fred for Christmas. So <laughs> exactly. How about you, Dennis? Anything anything catch your eye uh, out there in the wide world? Well, circling back to the visit to Dallas, and we talked about how how booming things are in Dallas. What was so funny was 
when I mentioned I was from New York, so many people said, "Well, I don't know if you've seen the study that projects that Dallas is going to become an even bigger city than New York." And I said,、hmm. "What? Tell me more." And what it turns out, and this was covered by every Dallas news organization. It turns out that there's a, a moving logistics company called Move Buddha that actually took the census data and and extrapolated the rapid rate that people are coming to Texas. And now they are estimating, Fred, that by 2100. That's right, by 2100, the Dallas-Fort Worth area will be the the most populated city in America. And guess what? The top three cities by then will all be Texas cities: Dallas, Houston, and Austin. So, at the rate people are moving to Texas, it's、uh, it's just going to take over, and New York will move to number five on that list. So, buckle in for twenty one hundred. It's all I can say. <laughs> well, if you're listening to this and you're establishing your business's seventy five year plan, <laughs> then definitely include、exactly. a Dallas showroom in、uh, something to do over the next six decades or so.、Uh, fascinating. Well, I'll keep it on. Yes, look for that growth to continue. Okay, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday. <laughs>